The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Okay, so the Dull Men's Club. I first stumbled on it on YouTube or something years ago, but it's a club that, quote, celebrates the ordinary. Like, I recall seeing something about a postbox appreciation society, or one guy who collected soda bottles, or another member who was really interested in those brown tourist site signs you see along the highway. Calendar items featured on the website include National Punctuation Day, or the annual Dulles Airport plane poll asking, were you there? Or the World Stone Skimming Championship. Okay, those last two sound pretty cool. Today, we'll be talking with Nat Bullard about a piece he wrote with Liam Denning for Bloomberg Opinion called Energy Stocks Are Now Duller Than Utilities. It opens with, quote, Utilities are, by design, a bit of a snooze. We feel no excitement at the miracle of instantaneous light, television, and coffee grinding, expecting those things simply to happen when we want them to, which virtually all the time they do. Reading this, I thought for sure there would be a dull men's club appreciation society for electrical things that worked as expected. I checked. There's not. Listening back to this interview, I kept pressing Nat, trying to get him to say energy or oil stocks are duller than utilities because utilities are doing all kinds of cool, new, exciting things, leading to really exciting growth stories. But no, he held his ground, wouldn't go there. Turns out it seems utilities are just the less dull of the two, so maybe we have a candidate for the dull men's club. I don't know. The interview itself is actually quite interesting, so stay with us. We'll also discuss a piece called Big Energy Companies See Coal's Last Stand that he wrote with David Fickling, also for Bloomberg Opinion. We'll talk about the future of coal and where and why it still make makes sense, or not. And we mentioned it last time, but Nat is Global Head of Executive Insights for BNF. He wears many hats for BNF, one of which is writing a weekly op-ed called Sparklines, published through Bloomberg Opinion. You can find them on Terminal under N.I. Bullard, or on Bloomberg.com under Sparklines. In either location, you can sign up for a weekly distribution. And as always, BNF does not provide investment or strategy advice, and you can hear the full disclaimer at the end of the show. I'm Mark Taylor, here with Dana Perkins, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNF Podcast. Nat, welcome back to Switched On. Thanks for having me, folks. Good to be back. So this first one we're going to talk about today actually has the word dull in the title, but it actually was one of your best read pieces, and I actually really got quite interested in it. Tell me why it was one of your best read pieces. What happened there? So what I wrote about, and I'll give you the exact title, is Energy Stocks Are Now Duller Than Utilities. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> I know that for many of you out there in Radio Land, that doesn't sound that interesting. However, within the financial community, and when you consider the scale of these two industries that we're talking about, like two of the biggest on earth in terms of stock market capitalization, in terms of fixed long-term assets, in terms of cash flow, everything, there's quite a bit of implication in the financial market for what is, to be honest, a sort of dry sounding thing, which is... There's a dividend yield paid out by oil and gas companies. There's a dividend yield paid out by utilities. Historically, utilities have had a relatively high dividend and relatively lower growth compared to oil and gas. Oil and gas companies have had a relatively low dividend and relatively high growth in equity prices and valuations. And what we've seen in the last four months is that that has switched. And now utilities Mm -hmm. are actually paying out less in dividend than oil and gas companies are paying. And what that means for those of you out there in radio land is that you can think about this. A company can reward its 
shareholders in two ways. It can either reward them with a stock price that is going up all the time, so you are benefiting from growth, or you can reward shareholders for holding your stock by paying them a fixed amount of cash based on the share price. That would be a dividend. And historically, utilities have said, well, you know, we're very, very stable. We have a very predictable market. We're going to give you a lot of cash flow in the form of dividends as a way of saying thank you for owning our stock. And oil and gas companies have said, listen, we need money to invest, so we're not going to pay you a lot of cash. Uh, we are going to then return an advantage to you in terms of an increasing stock price. And that's the way that you're going to benefit from owning a share in XYZ company. Now, when those things shift, it's a really, really big deal. When a company makes a decision that it needs to start paying out more in a dividend, it implies all kinds of things. One is you need to reward shareholders for holding on to you more. So the in order to do that, you pay them more money. But within that, there's also a question about the nature of your future growth prospects. It's saying maybe there's less of an option to have a high amount of growth in the share price. And if people want to hold on to this equity, we need to give them a reason. And the reason is give them more money in cash. And you're seeing this industry-wide for the energy stocks. That's right. So what I did is I took the S&P 500, which has within its sub-indices, one for utilities, one for what they confusingly call energy, that's actually oil and gas. Uh, yeah, sorry, everybody out there. The S&P energy is actually oil and gas. It's not energy. And you can just very easily pull the dividend yield on those for as, long, as far back as you want. In this case, I went all the way back to 1990. And you can see this, this nice trend, this compression over time, or rather convergence, I would say, over time between the yields in these two sectors. And then this crossover point, which happens sort of mid-summer, uh, ends up being quite a big deal. Can you go back and describe why this change started to happen? Well, the change started to happen because what my co-author Liam Denning said is roughly that the oil price option in equities is pretty much gone. So companies are really no longer pricing their their future vision with a huge amount of upside in the oil price. That's mm -hmm. not to say that it might not happen, right? You might get uh, spikes in oil that go to who knows what, $150, $300 a barrel or something like that. But it's not viewed as structural the way that the oil market activity of the early 2000s was, wherein you had primary energy demand and fuels demand in excess of economic growth. Mm -hmm. So you gave people a reason to invest in a growth story. And if that is sort of coming off the boil and you were expecting lower growth, then you're now competing with a whole host of other low growth industries, like let's say real estate or utilities and things that traditionally return a lot of benefit to investors in the form of cash. And so now you're having to compete with that message to the market in a very straightforward way with money by just paying people in the form of a dividend. I thought it was really interesting that you called the utilities of the past or our interaction as consumers with the utilities a mindless transaction. What has changed uh, with the utilities now or going forward to make them a bit more exciting? Well, I'm not certain that they're necessarily that much more exciting, although in a relative okay. sense, they're more exciting, right? This is in like from a financial markets perspective, they're being priced more excited. And I should clarify a mindless transaction is that you don't really think about your monthly electricity bill. We did a, we did an episode a little while back about the changing business models in, in utilities. But um, for the most part, we don't tend to think about our monthly electricity bill. And that's why we said mindless transaction. That's right. Well, listen, we are all sitting here in this lovely um, climate controlled studio. The beneficiaries of trillions of dollars and more than a century worth of investment in property, plant, equipment, uh, synchronization, optimization, all of that sort of stuff, 
to make sure that these things work without us really knowing about it. Like we're, we're not hand cranking a dynamo uh, to have flickering lights and recording under wax <laughs> discs here in the studio. You know, we're actually, we're actually the beneficiary of something that has embedded itself into every other sort of process and sub-process that we have in, in modern day. Which I would say was very apparent um, just earlier this month when my family out in California had their electricity shut off. And we could say that that's exciting in a way and not dull. But all jokes aside, it's a, it's a sign of a couple of things. One, inherent physical brittleness mm -hmm. in the power infrastructure and architecture of Northern California, in particular the WUI, the Wildland Urban Interface, where so many of these homes are being shut off for wildfire risk. Um, but also the sense that there is a great deal of things that need to change and can change within the utility, the utility business and its physical stuff. If you wanted to invest to harden PG&E's infrastructure in order to not have these fire shutoffs, it's on the order of, I don't even know the exact numbers, but at the minimum tens of billions of dollars, if not hundreds of billions of dollars worth of investment, which is all capital that needs to be deployed, which is probably capital that you cannot be paying out to shareholders as you used to. Now, is that the reason for the growth story, you know, to, to maintain the status quo or get back up to the status quo? Or is it a, you know, exciting, bold new frontier? It's a transformation narrative for sure. And, and actually, as you can see from oil and gas interest in utilities, there's a sense of competition with, you know, at the margins within these two very established businesses. Let's think about it as, as you change the way that you energize a vehicle fleet. So you're no longer pumping distillates, you know, through a, a a network of physical pipes and you're essentially substituting electrons sent through wires, it's unclear who exactly is going to own that endpoint. But one or the other company can. We see plenty of oil and gas companies buying charging networks, for instance. Um, you could also argue that they're buying charging networks and tagging into the end of trillions of dollars worth of power infrastructure already owned by big companies who could probably do it on their own. So uh there's there's more there's more excitement uh, in this part of the margins than there would have been ten years ago. What should we be watching for in this particular dynamic? Just well, watch watch my my simple squiggly line chart and see see how this goes over time. Uh, watch as well the weighting in the S the the S and P five hundred that energy companies get uh, in the early nineties. This is going way back now, but in the early nineties the energy sector had a higher weighting in the S&P 500 than technology stocks. It now has barely any more than utilities. I think it has less than pharmaceuticals and healthcare, which is really an extraordinary, extraordinary tale about the sort of transformation of the U.S. economy. But it's also just a sign that these, these are not, you know, the double digit percentages of the proxy for the global or the United States economy and the market that they used to be. So pivoting a bit, the energy story that we're talking about is energy story that those of us who listen to a podcast right now probably experience. There's another article that you also wrote for Bloomberg Opinion that's called Big Energy Companies See Coal's Last Stand. And one of the things you really point out in this particular piece is that there that Coal's story is one actually of countries that are developing energy infrastructure in places where maybe there wasn't as much or there wasn't this predictable, all the lights are on, all the electricity is available. Right. Can you delve into that a little bit? Sure. So the, if you watch the long-term narratives that go through that go through sectors, it's always interesting to watch how they change, right? So from the early days of the analyses that Mark and I were doing, you could look at say, the coal sector and its argument is, well, we're the cheapest. 
Right. Like, like you don't, we don't need to have any debate about any other merit. We are the least cost provider of the synchronized electron on the grid. There you go. As you have competition from other resources, you see uh, another sort of layer that adds on that narrative. You can probably still make that argument in many places, but then the next one is, well, we're reliable, right? Um, we may be domestic in some cases, right? We, this is the uh, molecules of freedom argument more or less in the United States. We, 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 are, we are reliable, we're domestic, we're predictable in terms of supply. We're not intermittent. And look, as technology to uh, synchronize uh, to the grid, every other kind of renewable and intermittent energy you might have becomes better and better. And those are simply so cheap that even the integration costs are not really a problem. Then the argument has to continue to shift in some way. And the argument has shifted out of a domestic argument in the higher cost markets in Europe and in the United States uh, to... Well, you know, China still builds a coal plant every week. This is not only not true, it hasn't been true for quite some time. Then the argument becomes, well, you know, in India, if India is going to electrify in the same way that China did, then it's going to turn out that same way. Fair enough. China has like, China has like four times the amount of energy capacity that, uh, that, that India does per capita. Is it going to grow to the point, and you're going to grow to the point where it becomes just as much uh, an energy economy in terms of power generation capacity per capita as what you would have in China? Potentially, potentially not. Um, but at the same time, it's also the beneficiary, India is in this case, of interacting with all of these technologies as they're really, really mature, right? So finding wind and solar as the cheapest cost of, of new build electricity in markets like this. So these shifting rationalizations and justifications are a sign of a market that is very, very mature and that is being intersected in multiple ways and in multiple places by new technologies. One of the things you also bring up are the different scope one, two, and in this case, three emissions mm -hmm. of the steel industry and various right. industries. And I think I have a sub-question here, which is not just about the utility industry, but just generally how deeply anybody's going to look at scope three because it's so difficult for companies to actually calculate out. Should we do a should we do a family roundtable on what scope three emissions actually are? Absolutely. Go for it, Mark. No, I'm not. I'm not your guy. Okay. <laughs> scope three emissions. Uh, scope three emissions for uh, for those of you out there in Radio Land are emissions from the value chain of your customers of your company, right? So there there are the emissions. In the case of take for instance BHP, the mining group, the emissions that people make from using your product. So there, it, it's it's possible to have very, very low scope one emissions and two emissions, which are related to your own use, basically, but have extremely high scope three emissions because you're selling coal into a market that uses it to make steel or to make power. And in the case in particular of coal's use in steel, uh, the reason that it's used is, is that it's hard to substitute for. It's cheap, it's reliable, uh, and there are, as Mark can tell you, like physical chemical reasons why you need to use it in a lot of processes. What's interesting to see is we begin to see some of these big uh, publicly listed internationally diversified mining metals and mining companies starting to address this issue mostly from a research and development perspective, but as a way to, I think, start working around the inherent issues that might come from their very, very large scope three emissions. And if you think about it, in the case of steel, there's there's really two ways to do that. One is substitution at the combustion level, right? Like the the the, the process level to make steel the way you traditionally do, and that is a 
a hydrogen argue, argument for the large part. But then there's another argument that my co-author for this piece, David Fickling, looked at pretty closely, which is the same thing that really gutted the primary steel industry in the United States, which was um, electric arc furnace recycling, is probably going to take hold in China in particular, given the fact that China has been deploying half the world's steel for about 10 years now. Uh, so you you have substitution and you have essentially non-consumption as your, as your competing thing that might start changing that scope three emissions landscape. In theory, in theory, one could make steel uh, that has zero emissions for most of the process if you use an entirely renewable electric arc furnace uh, in the process of making recycled steel. Scope three emissions, as I previously stated, are difficult to calculate. And I think that companies in the energy industry, if they started to integrate this in, this may have an impact on their attractiveness from an ESG standpoint. Tying it back to the first article that we were actually talking about earlier, how do you see this potentially having an interplay with these balance and dividends and stock price and um, just attractiveness of these companies overall? So as, as, a, as a proper commentator, I don't get to talk at all about whether or not this makes companies better investments or not. But what it can definitely do is add a layer of distinction, right? So I, I think you could... You, the institutional investor, will ask yourself in the process of doing analysis whether this, is, whether a focus on ESG, environmental, social, and governance, uh, is a matter of alpha, so it's a way of making an outsized return compared to peer groups. If it's a matter of beta, if it's a matter of reducing risk and sort of uncorrelating your risks from your peer group, or whether it's um, just something that is essentially preparing you better for the future. Let's put it in another way. If you had, I don't know, a 35% growth rate as an industry and you had increasing gross margins uh, and you had decreasing unit costs, you can probably get away with saying we are just the growth story. You don't really need to think about ESG as a major lens on the performance or the future prospects of the company. If, however, you have uh, less of a growth story, uh, and you're in a mature industry with well-analyzed peer groups, so without a lot of sort of disruptive innovation frontier around you, then it's probably sensible to start to start applying lenses like this uh, to that sector, because there they are ways of making distinctions, right? They could they could lead to better returns. That's a matter of deep financial analysis. They could be reducing risk or uncorrelating it from the rest of the sector. So. I think I think we'll start to see that more and more applied to very mature industries, not just because uh, they might have the very technical exposures around emissions or things like that, but simply because it's another way of analyzing things that are otherwise quite well analyzed. Okay, so let's go back to the emerging markets theme for a minute. So if you'll indulge me, I heard this thing yesterday that Southeast Asia, who has historically built, been the ones promoting coal these days, right? They've stopped. And they've completely shifted their focus to hydro, right? Which carries its own set of problems, but at least it's not, they're saying at least it's not coal, right? So it was the kind of last stronghold of coal new build, um, but it's gone for the most part. Well, there's, there's, an there's an element in all of these things that doesn't really make its way into a lot of macro modeling, which is yeah. what do people want? So people, yeah. people, people, if we think about energy from a very classical perspective is energy is just the ability to do work. 
So I don't go out and buy a quantum of fuel or a, you know, a certain number of electrons. I actually, <laughs> I actually hire them to do a job, which is right. run the lights, uh, you know, energize rotating machinery, help me move, help me heat, whatever it might be. Yeah. And again, you can make the argument when the, e the spread in economics between something renewable or zero carbon and something high carbon but very very reliable when that spread is very very wide you can make the argument that mitigates in favor of let's just do more coal because it's cheap reliable domestic whatever when the economics of those compress forward quite a bit such that there's either very little or no difference in the levelized cost of energy from one versus the other I think you sort of start to look into sort of secondary characteristics that are imputed to each of these different sources. So people say, uh, I want something clean because now I know that there's no difference economically between them. Mm -hmm. uh, put it another way, pe people have preferences. Uh, and as incomes rise, as people are past the point of sort of abject poverty and more into the sort of approaching middle income country status, people don't want air pollution. People have a sensitivity around baking in 30 years worth of worth of emissions. And it actually is much more localized than it is uh, than it is sort of generalized and, and climactic. You can think of it as it's more of a local environmental issue than a global climate issue that you see people manifesting all of this objection around. So people say, look, you know, OK, they may not actually care in the least about the global warming uh, carbon emissions aspect of having a coal plant in, in one's backyard. What people do care about is local air quality. I mean, look, you can walk on the street here in London and see that we're soon to be in, what is it, the low emissions zone? Yeah. Tell we me already London, are. Tell me what it is. We already are. We are in the ultra low emissions zone where we're recording today and where Mark and I live separately outside of uh, a little bit further out we will be in the ultra-low emission zone in 2021. And it does ultimately come down to air quality and human health. That's right. Now, let's be Is that the bow clear. you can tie around all this? Sorry. Well, it's 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 part of the bow because it's the, it's the next thing to look for, uh -huh. right? It's the thing to watch for the intersection of behavior uh, that's not institutional investor behavior, but is personal, the aggregated personal preference behavior, right? Yeah. So from a climate perspective, your ultra-low emission zone in London does basically nothing. <laughs> it's not that big of a deal. Right. From an air quality, from a children's health quality perspective, it does quite a bit. Now, London had the great fogs, you know, as recently as I believe the 1950s, right? So just- The big smoke. The, the big smoke, appalling air quality issues at a time when there was no alternative to energize and heat. So you used coal for everything. Coal plants were local, you know, the ones that have become both swanky apartments and a museum yeah. here in London were both operating. But London, relatively speaking, got rich. And so it's stopped really wanting that. You mm -hmm. had alternatives somewhere else. To an extent, you just sort of globalized the pollution issue by sending it somewhere else. You build a nuclear fleet, you build gas, whatever. But we're going to see more and more, um, I, I think, awareness of issues at a local level that when you aggregate them, start to be significant for change. And what's very interesting about them is that um, you can't really litigate them away. Like I don't know, I don't know that there are there are probably forces trying to intervene and prevent the ultra low emission zone from expanding. Good luck, <laughs> right? Good luck to them. There is 
the element, though, where change does take a long time, and I think you pointed this out specifically in reference to India, where the average age of a coal-fired power station in India is 10 years. Right. So because these are such big infrastructure projects, you know, we may end up seeing a coal industry that actually has a reasonably flat, maybe not growth, reasonably flat future for some time to come until the lagging installations of new builds actually catches Potentially. up. Potentially. I would also I would also raise the possibility for for analytical thinkers that um, the frameworks we've used in in our economies wherein we operate stuff for forty years past its economic life may not necessarily be the paradigm in a lot of different markets. Um, if if there are enough environmental changes out there that say, I don't know, impair the watershed that you need to cool your coal plant, well, then it doesn't matter if it's eight years old or 80 years old, you may not be able to operate it. Um, if there's enough local objection to it, then people may want things to go away. So we've already been through this phase of shifting things quite a ways out. And you know, th this is economic modeling that says that the coal plant has a 40-year life. There are plenty of things uh, that are lemons or elephants shortly <laughs> after they're completed. And they and they they really may not be may not be doing that. So I, I think it's prudent to still model things based on, you know, in expected economic lifetime. I think it's also worthwhile to consider a counter argument about whether or not things are actually going to be operating for forty years just because they've been built. Um, there are plenty of examples of oil fired power plants that were built, uh, that were built at, at certain periods of time that are now essentially obsolete immediately. In many cases, because they were substituted for coal. Uh, you know, there, there are there are plenty of times and places when substitution can happen, when there are alternatives and where uh, people make their own economic decision, which is, uh, I'm just not going to do this anymore. We had this happen throughout throughout the United States fleet, right? We've even got a time right now, it's almost like a great test case in which we've been sort of stripping regulations around around particulate emissions and things like that, that in theory should be great for a coal plant. But Investors making a rational decision look forward and say, well, not only am I not going to build anything new, I'm also going to shut down something old because mm -hmm. I have a, I have an alternative. I have an alternative to that service that's being provided. And that's kind of what's, well, in a way, driving the growth story for the utilities. I, I, in, in a way, yes, because actually more, more investment is good. And, you know, utilities, as you add wires, you're, you're adding a recurring and pretty stable cash flow to investors, at least right. in the United States paradigm of uh, investor-owned utilities. I mean, but as things get cheaper, as you get more options, you, you have other areas you can expand. That's right. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, it, in theory, if I'm a utility, I should be the beneficiary of every new wire that gets built. Exactly. Um, I may not be capturing the value of every new electron that's generated, but I should be getting value out of uh, every electron that's being delivered. Right. Uh, now, I could be competed away at the margin or maybe even at the heart by highly distributed energy, or I could have a plane that myself. I could be providing the electrons and the infrastructure to energize an electric vehicle fleet, or I could be competed away by, uh, by an oil and gas company doing that, or by a technology company doing it, or any number of other people that decide to tap into the existing electricity network, build in points onto it, and come up with a, a different business model uh, than what you might already have right now. Nat, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure, guys. See you next time. I'm in London. 
Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.